Hello, this is Daniel Poppy, pastor at Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. Good to see you all here today. For those of you who may not know me, I'm Rick Edwards. I serve as the Director of Discipleship here at Emmaus Road. And uh, even if you do know me, I still serve as Director of Discipleship here at Emmaus Road. Um, it's good to see everybody. In summertime, it's kind of weird because a lot of people are on vacations and people come and go. So maybe for some of us, we haven't seen each other for quite a while. So um, good to have you all here and those who are worshiping online as well. Just to catch you up on me, us, Debbie and I, we've been traveling some quite a bit. We went to uh, on vacation with some friends of ours from Kansas City and um, then another trip for a family wedding and a little bit of vacation and a business trip for Debbie uh, to Washington State as well. So we've kind of been in and out here as well, so it's kind of good to get reconnected with some of you all again. Um, I also wanted to let you know a little bit about what's going on in our lives. Um, around, I guess it was on Mother's Day, um, we found out that we're going to be grandparents for the first time, uh, come towards the end of the year. Some of you may already know this, but our son, Colin, and his wife, Teresa, are expecting a baby somewhere towards the end of December. Um, that announcement immediately sparked discussions of, well, actually speculation is what it was, about, okay, what's the baby going to look like? Going to have curly hair or straight hair, brown eyes or blue eyes, because that's on both sides of the family. Um, and the conjectures just kind of keep rolling, especially when Debbie gets together with her four other sisters, or three other sisters, I guess. Um, they like to compare notes and conjecture about all that kind of stuff. Um, the funny thing is, is that our kids, we have a daughter, Lene, and a son, Colin, um, in some ways are not, nothing like Debbie or I. Um, Lene is, um, well, they're both very musically talented, and Debbie played the flute for a little bit, but, and a little bit of piano, but there's no musical ability on my side of the family whatsoever, so we're not quite sure where they got that. Lene has a beautiful singing voice, and has been on a couple of worship teams and leading people in, in music. And our son Colin picked up the trumpet and became like first chair trumpet and the leader of the, what do you call the marching band, the head person there. Um, so we're not sure where that gene came from either. Um, Lene is terrifically cre uh, creative and very artistic. She's up on all the latest fashions and music and movies, and we're stuck in the 70s, or I am stuck in the 70s. Um, Colin is pretty athletic. I mean, I was, I was on the high school track team, but I had absolutely no endurance. I, I, the track coaches couldn't find a place for me to run, except for they finally put me in the long jump, where my run was about 40 yards long, and that was about the extent of my endurance. But, our son Colin has been in triathlons and marathons, and a year ago he rode his bike in Hawaii from sea level at Hilo, clear to the top of Mauna Kea, which is like 13,010 feet, something like that. In a distance of 42 miles, he went from zero to 13,000 feet. So crazy, that's not in either one of our genes. We're too short-legged and we don't 
have any kind of athletic endurance. But, so, but that's kind of weird how that, maybe genes skip a generation or something? I don't know. Our son Colin is hoping that the baldness gene skips his generation um, for his sake. I hope it does. But in some ways, they are like us. Um, they both seem to value knowledge, and they love to read. Debbie and I both um, are like that. Um, they're both, both very interested in creation care and being in the outdoors, which Debbie and I also love and appreciate. Um, on the negative side, they can be kind of perfectionistic, like Debbie and I are. We're kind of picky about some things, and I think some of our, our two kids have picked a little bit of that up as well. Um, and one thing that we all have in common is that we absolutely love, above any other kind of cookie in the world, is Debbie's chocolate chip cookies. So that's, that's per, maybe that's a matter of nurture, not nature, I don't know. But um, in those ways, we are alike. And so I tell you all this because I know that deep down you really wanted to know all this stuff about the Edwards family. Um, but it also happens to tie in with a little bit of our passage that we're going to be looking at today from the Beatitudes. Um, it goes back to, well, I think we're kind of familiar with like different aphorisms that talk about this uh, similarity between generations. Have you heard of the, word, you know, the phrase, he's a spitting image of his dad or mom or whatever? Or the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. That's another kind of aphorism that kind of relays that same kind of idea. Or you might say he or she is his father's son or his fa her father's daughter. Or she takes after her mother in that way. Or he takes after his mother that way. Those are all little kind of common things in our culture that kind of relate this idea of likeness uh, of the parent to the child kind of thing. Um, and it's this idea of likeness that's one of the key elements of Christian discipleship as well. We are seeking, as Christians on the way, uh, to become more and more like Christ, like Jesus. Um, we might put it in language, theological language, by saying that this is the process of sanctification or being formed into the likeness of Christ, becoming like Christ. In the Sermon on the Mount, which we're going to get to, um, specifically our passage today from the Beatitudes, Jesus is providing us a kind of a peek into what it means to take after God or to be like God, to do God-like things. So let's look into the passage, or actually, before we look into the passage, there's a little bit of uh, Jewish um, language that we need to know, know something about. There's two idioms, two little phrases or ways of stating things in the Jewish tradition that comes through in Matthew's Gospel, actually in lots of the New Testament. Um, a lot of people have noticed that the, the Gospel of Matthew, which we find the Sermon on the Mount in, um, has a very strong Jewish character. Um, the very beginning of Matthew has this long genealogy of Jewish names, the fathers and the sons and the lineage of Jesus. Um, it, Matthew often mentions how something that Jesus said or Jesus did was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Um, the whole structure of Matthew's book is kind of reflects the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, because he breaks his gospel up into five big sections. There's five big sections of Jesus' teaching and five big sections of narrative telling what Jesus, where Jesus went and what Jesus did. So this idea is going to be key to our passage for today. Um, the first one is um, this idiom that describes the character of someone as being a son of. 
Um, it's a particular virtue or maybe sometimes a vice that describes the person um, with that characteristic. And the New Testament writers pick this Jewish practice up. So, for example, in Mark, Jesus appoints his 12 disciples. And the description that Mark gives is that Simon and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Now, of course, literally they weren't anything like a weather phenomenon, but they had the characteristic of thunder. So Jesus gave them that nickname. In Luke, um, when Jesus sends his disciples out on a little mission trip, he tells them to go to, into villages and, and stay with people there. And he said that whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. If a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. Later, uh, in another um, episode in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is really laying it on the Pharisees. He was criticizing them. And he says to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you're hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and on land to make one convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Pretty strong language. Um, and in John's gospel, when Jesus is nearing his death, he's praying to God um, for his disciples and those who will come after him. And he was praying to God and he said, while I was with them, meaning his disciples, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them and not one of them perished except for the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Referring there to Judas, the son of perdition or son of destruction. Um, and in the book of Acts and later on in some of the writings of Paul, the same pattern uh, pops up now and again. Joseph was a Levite from Cyprus. He was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement. Um, and in Ephesians, Paul writes, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world. And the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience... Among them, we all too, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. So there he swapped out the word sons with children, making it applicable to both genders. So you can see the pattern or the, the idea, this idiom that people used in Jewish cultures to describe someone's character by saying they are the son of, and then some... Um, theme or some virtue or some vice as well. So that's going to be important for us to start to get into as we start uh, looking at our passage. So let's look at our passage, which actually is in Matthew chapter 5, and we'll read verses 9 through 12. Um, you can look it up on your device or read it on the screens as well. Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And the actual Greek literally says they will be called sons of God, that Hebrew idiom. And then verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way that they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So, Jesus is saying that those who are peacemakers will be blessed by being recognized as true sons of God. 
or in the NIV version, it's children of God, expanding that to include everyone. But the literal, literal language there says sons of God, using that idea that your characteristic is like your parent, in this case, God. So the link is rather explicit. People whose character and their actions are considered godly or godlike are those who are the peacemakers. So we're going to talk about peacemaking today. The core element of God's nature is peace. For example, in Romans 15.33, Paul wraps up his letter to the people in Rome, the Christians in Rome, by saying, Now the peace of God be with you all. Amen. And in 2 Corinthians 13, he says, he writes, Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. And then he closes his book to the Thessalonians, his first letter. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be kept complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the book of Hebrews identifies this core element of God. Now may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, that is Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will. So we see that the early Christians believed that one of the core elements, the core characteristics of God was peace itself. And so Jesus says that if you want to be like God, if you want to be uh, similar to God or do God-like things, one of the things that you'll need, that you'll expect to be among are people who are making peace. So rather than try to define it or whatever, I thought we'd just take a look at some portraits of peacemakers. Uh, I've got a few pictures on the screen that we'll look at and uh, we'll discuss a little bit what makes them peacemakers. First example is this. This is the Colt 45 peacemaker. It was a 45 caliber revolver that was designed in 1872 for the U.S. government, and it became the standard pistol of the U.S. Army from 1873 until 1892. It's been made during that time and ever since in with like 30-some different caliber sizes and various barrel lengths. Uh, Colt has canceled its production twice, but because of popular demand, it's brought them back again. It was called the Colt Peacemaker because it was a famous piece of Americana, popular with ranchers and lawmen and outlaws alike in the Wild West era. Um, our next example is the Convair B-36 Peacemaker bomber. You can see the big one is the B-36. The smaller one is the B-17 or the B-29, which was the biggest airplane in World War II. And you can see how much bigger the B-36 is. It's called the Peacemaker. Biggest piston engine aircraft ever built. Had the longest wingspan of any combat aircraft ever built, 230 feet. Um, its wings, when they at the thickest point, were seven and a half feet thick. So a, a person could walk through the inside of the wing to get to one of the engines and work on them if they had to in mid-flight. Mid, mid um, it had a range of 10,000 miles. It's had four bomb bays. It could carry up to 87,000 pounds of bombs. It had eight gun turrets. Each one of them had two 20-millimeter cannons on them. And when they fired them all at once, the plane shook so much that it often would short out the plane's electrical wiring and its, electron and its uh, electronics, which would lead to aircraft controls being or failing, and their navigation equipment would go nuts. So kind of ironic that this big, huge airplane 
would kind of destroy itself um, by accident. Um, the next example is the long distance guided missile, the Peacekeeper. Here you can see a picture of one being launched from its silo. It was a four-stage intercontinental ballistic missile, could carry up to 10 independently targetable smaller missiles or bombs. They call them re-entry vehicles. Um, it was more accurate than any other ballistic missile. It was 70 feet long and weighed 198,000 pounds. Um, it was ejected from its silo by pressurized gas until it got about 50 feet up in the air and then its rocket engines would take over and take it to its target. The little smaller rockets or missiles that were inside of it could each be launched and each were independently controlled. And each one of those had a 30, 300 kiloton warhead. So it's a thermonuclear missile. It was built by the US and used from 1985 to 2005 when disarmament treaties withdrew it from service. Um, and our last example of a peacemaker is this Marvel Cinematic Universe character portrayed by John Cena. I don't know if you've ever seen him. Um, he was, his alias is Chris Christopher Smith, and he became rather mentally unstable. He's actually kind of an anti-hero or a supervillain slash superhero kind of a person. He swore an oath to keep the peace, but at any cost, regardless of the means he would have to use to achieve it and however many people he would have to kill. So he created his own uniform, he adopted this alias called Peacemaker, and began his pursuit of justice by whatever means were necessary. And after he began killing criminals and other civilians in the name of peace, he got arrested and thrown in jail for 30 years. So, obviously, <laughs> uh, our culture's definition of peacemaking is somewhat askew, you might say, or distorted, completely out of whack, whatever kind of language you want to put on it. Um, which brings us to our second Hebrew idiom used in this passage, the idea of peace. The Jewish idea of peace is not just a lack of conflict or a lack of violence. It means the well-being of the whole created order. The word shalom is the Hebrew word that was used in that. And that's what the early Christians picked up as well. So Jesus is speaking, when he speaks of peacemaking, he's talking about the kind of peace that is holistic, that, is, that creates well-being for everyone and all things, including the creation. Um, it could be peace and harmony between nations as well as individual persons seeking um, peaceful, harmonious personal relationships. Um, sometimes peacemakers can seem to be troublemakers or maybe unrealistic dreamers. Um, but the beatitude that Jesus pronounces promises that when the kingdom comes in all of its fullness, these peacemakers will be the ones who are called sons of God or children of God. If we want to expand the idea about that. It's the Old Testament promise of a special relationship with God based on the idea of working for peace. So shalom, it doesn't mean only the absence of trouble. Sometimes it is accompanied by trouble. We'll talk about that later. But it always means everything that makes for a person's highest good or the world's highest good. Not only freedom from trouble, but also enjoyment of all types of good. So let's try it again. Let's reboot and look at some other, maybe more uh, better ideas or examples of what peacemakers are. Uh, one example is George Fox. He was an English pastor, preacher, who lived back in the 1600s. He founded the Religious Society of Friends 
which we commonly know as the Friends or the Quakers. Um, he rebelled against some religious and political authorities by proposing an unusual approach to Christianity, an uncompromising approach. He stressed a direct and intense personal relationship with God um, that didn't necessarily need to have the mediation of a church or a priest or someone else, but you could have a direct experience of God yourself. Um, he stressed a simple, very disciplined lifestyle of purity, and they also refrained from all manner of violence. Um, in fact, in one letter, one of the Society of Friends chapters or churches, they didn't call themselves churches, but groups, wrote this letter to King Charles II. And they said, we utterly deny all outward wars and strife and fightings with outward weapons for any end or under any pretense whatsoever. This is our testimony to the whole world. The spirit of Christ, which leads us into all truth, will never move us to fight in war against any man with outward weapons, neither for the kingdom of Christ nor for the kingdoms of this world. So that's one example. Um, the Quakers themselves are like one of three major church traditions that are called the historic peace churches. So the Quakers, along with the Church of the Brethren and the Mennonite Church, those are all the major groups called historic peace churches. Um, the Mennonites also include other Anabaptist groups like the Amish, which you may be familiar with, um, Hutterites, and the Apostolic Christian Church. These historic peace churches always take the position that Jesus himself was a pacifist, and he explicitly taught and practiced pacifism, and so his followers have to do likewise. Um, these churches might vary on whether physical force can ever be justified, for example, self-defense, or maybe to protect the rights of others um, who are being threatened. Some adhere strictly to a non-resistance when confronted by violence, but they all agree um, across the board that violence on behalf of a country or a government is prohibited for Christians. Second example is Leo Tolstoy. He lived in the 1800s, early 1900s. He was a Russian writer, best known for these big, huge novels like War and Peace or Anna Karenina. In the 1870s, he had this profound moral crisis and he came, had a spiritual awakening and he literally interpreted the teachings of Jesus, especially from the Beatitudes here. And he himself then came up with this nonviolent philosophy. He wrote, those who neither struggle against violence nor take part in it can no more be enslaved than water can be cut. They can be robbed, they can be prevented from moving about, wounded or killed, but they cannot be enslaved. That is made to act against their own will. So one of the greatest writers of all time, Tolstoy had this big, huge influence on nonviolent resistance movements. He was a major influence on Mahatma Gandhi later, also on Martin Luther King Jr. and the political strategies of Nelson Mandela, and um, which, and so we'll, we'll bring up our next one, which happens to be Mahatma Gandhi, which probably most of us are familiar with. He was actually in his beginning, he was a peace activist, of course, but in the beginning he was an, a lawyer from India and he challenged the right or the colonialism of the British Empire and was a leader in India becoming an independent nation rather than being part of the British Empire. Um, the next one is someone we may not be quite as familiar with, Lema Gboi. She was a um, 
a woman, or is, she's still alive, is from Liberia, the Western African country of Liberia. And during the 1990s and early 2000s, um, Liberia was torn apart by two major civil wars. Um, between the two of them, there was like maybe two years of peace in between them, but it was like a span of 14 years where the whole country was just ripped apart by these civil wars. Um, the, just the first one killed about 200,000 people in Liberia. Uh, in the first one, three different factions were struggling for control until a guy named Charles Taylor was elected president in 97. And then, after a couple of years of peace, then a second civil war broke out and the other people were fighting against Charles Taylor's administration. Um, it's notable that it was, it was during these wars that uh, child soldiers were used. They were kidnapped from their families and forced to either carry ammunition or become soldiers on the front lines themselves. Um, and they also were often drugged with uh, cocaine or heroin um, and other drugs for a means of controlling these young kids. Um, anyway, in the midst of this, and probably back, it actually was in the, during the first Liberian Civil War, that a group of women that was headed by Lema Gabawi formed this organization called Women of Liberal Liberia Mass Action for Peace. So they worked together, over 3,000 Christian and Muslim women mobilized these efforts. They had sit-ins and protests and uh, strikes against the government until finally they were able to help achieve peace in Liberia after those 14 years of civil war. And they brought to power the, woman's, the country's first woman president because the voters decided they'd had enough of uh, men in power, so they voted a woman into power. So Lema Gabawi first got involved in peacemaking back in 1991. She was part of the Christian Health Association of Liberia. And they worked to repair the psychic and the social damage caused by the wars. Um, one of their programs is called the Trauma Healing and Reconciliation Program. And during this time, she studied and worked her way uh, through college to get an associate's degree, while at the same time um, working with her training in trauma healing, reconciliation, trying to rehabilitate some of these ex-child soldiers that had been scarred by uh, serving in the army. Here's what she wrote. A whole generation of young men had no idea who they were without a gun in their hands. Several generations of women were widowed, had been raped, seen their daughters and mothers raped, and their children kill and be killed. Neighbors had turned against neighbors. Young people had lost hope, and old people, everything they had painstakingly earned. To a person, we were traumatized. So she worked in this area of uh, trauma uh, healing. She got a master's of arts in, in a program called Conflict Transformation from Eastern Mennonite University in Virginia. Uh, she received a certificate in conflict prevention and peace building training from the UN and the healing victims of war trauma in the country of Cameroon. So later on, after the, the peace was established and the democratic elections were taking place. Um, she supported this Liberian foundation that supported or that um, established schools in Liberia. And now she teaches and speaks to advance women's rights and peace and security in West Africa and in the Middle East and across the globe and is an adjunct teacher at Columbia University in New York. Um, the last one is someone we're probably more familiar with, Malala. Yusuf Zeh, I think, I don't know how to pronounce that name, Yusuf Zeh. She was a Pakistani girl, and she was act an activist for educating girls, women and girls. 
and won the 2014 Nobel Peace Prize. She was uh, a target of an assassination attempt in 2012 by the Taliban because they were upset by her um, espousing uh, education for girls. But she survived that and is active today in peacemaking um, across the world. So you can see from these different examples how multifaceted peacemaking is. Um, George Fox was someone who worked in the world of religion. Um, there was Tolstoy from the world of literature, um, Gandhi in the area of politics and counseling, mediation, education, all of these are represented by these examples of folks that are peacemakers. Um, so I think they can be inspirational uh, for us and maybe instructive for us as to what goes into peacemaking a little bit. Um, but one thing we need to remember is the verses that follow, blessed are the peacemakers. Um, I'll just read these again in Matthew 5.10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way that they persecuted the prophets, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, in the meantime, as you're being blessed as a peacemaker, you're also perhaps going to face some trouble. Trouble for peacemakers. There's intellectual and theoretical kinds of trouble. For example, we have to think about, okay, that question of what do I do? Is self-defense allowed? Do I fight back if someone's threatening me or my family? Uh, how do I resist if, or can I? Um, can Christians ever ethically go to war? Um, can the ends of peace ever justify the means of war? Um, those are theoretical, philosophical kinds of questions that we have to wrestle with, which can stress our brains and our minds and our hearts. Um, just war theories have gotten really complicated, asking questions about when is it right, if ever, to go to war? Um, if you do go to war, how are the warriors supposed to conduct themselves? Um, when is too much force or, or maybe uh, afflicting, inflicting pain or violence on civilian populations. What's, you know, what's the rules there? Um, and then after the war, what's our responsibility for restoring or repairing the damage? All of that is packed into this, these ideas of what just war theories are. Um, we also have not just intellectual and theoretical troubles, but street level troubles troubles that affect us um, in our daily lives. George Fox was jailed and beaten numerous times for his beliefs, among them the refusal to pick up arms for his country. Um, Gandhi was assassinated for his, um, I guess, too friendly attitude towards people of another faith in his peacemaking activities. And we already mentioned how Malala was uh, targeted um, as, by an assassin and was wounded. Um, but this is the kind of Jesus, the trouble that Jesus tells us to expect and maybe, um, ex maybe look for or be aware of at least. Um, this kind of trouble is what um, former Congressman John Lewis called good trouble. That is, you get in trouble, but you, you're doing it for a good cause. Um, and we got a little video clip here to show what John Lewis meant by good trouble and his experiences doing that during the civil rights movement. We line up in twos to walk from Selma to Montgomery. 
we're marching today to dramatize to the nation, dramatize to the world, the hundreds and thousands of Negro citizens of Alabama, but particularly here in the Blackfield area, denied the right to vote. I was wearing a backpack before it became fashionable to wear backpacks. I thought I was going to get arrested and go to jail, so in this backpack, I wanted to have something to eat. I had one apple and one orange. I had two books, I had toothpaste, and a toothbrush. But we understood why people were walking through the streets of Selma. That the sheriff of Selma and Dallas County had requested that all white men over the age of 21 to come down to the courthouse that sat at night to be deputized to become part of his posse. We just kept walking. We come to the highest point on the Everpettis Bridge. Down below, we see a sea of blue, Alabama State Troopers. We saw all of this water down below in the Alabama River. Jose Williams said to me, John, can you swim? I said, no, Jose, what about you? He said, hello. I said, well, there's too much water in this river for us to jump. We must go straight ahead. A man by the name of John Cloud identified himself and said, I'm Major John Cloud of the Alabama State Troopers. This is an unlawful march, will not be allowed to continue. Disperse, return to your homes or to your church. I said, Major, may I have a word? Is that would be no word. You saw these men putting on their gas masks. He said, Troopers advance. They came toward us, beating us with knife sticks, trampling us with voices, releasing tear gas. So you can see that peacemaking is not a passive namby-pamby thing for people who have a weak spirit or will. So peacemaking is hard and it's active and it takes a lot of patience as well. There's a program we've heard mention of the church, the Mennonite church several times. 
the Eastern Mennonite University in Virginia has a master's program, a certificate that you can get in faith-based peace building. So I took a look at their curriculum for this certificate and thought I would share a couple of the, some of the courses that are required for this just to kind of give us an idea of what peacemaking looks like on the ground. Um, first set of courses that are required for faith-based peace building is just some courses for context, just to kind of get background, one of which would be Christian ethics. The second one would be justice, peace, and the biblical story. What's, what's the Bible have to say about these topics? So in the area of psychology and relation, relational theology, there's a course called Forgiveness and Reconciliation. Another one called Race and Religion in America, which brings together theology and sociology. Another course, Economics for Emancipation, Economics and Social Class Issues, and a course on restorative justice, so criminal justice, politics, those kinds of things. And then there's some practical type courses, courses that talk about the practices and engaging, engagement in peacemaking. So teaching for Christian community is one course. Understanding conflict, what, how does conflict happen? What causes it? Um, a course on mediation and negotiation, helpful tools for peacemaking, right? Nonviolent mobilization, something like what John Lewis was trying to practice. And then strategies for trauma awareness and resilience. So now, as I said, I don't expect all of us to be experts in this. This is a master's level class, but it gives you an idea of the types of things and the types of knowledge and the types of practice that goes into peacemaking for us and things that help, maybe might help guide our way as we try to become peacemakers, if that's our desire. So you can see peacemaking or peace building, as the Mennonite University calls it, doesn't necessarily require that we do nothing in the face of dangerous threats for the sake of peace. Biblical peace does not come from evading issues. It comes from facing them, dealing with them, and solving them. We're called to make peace, yes, even when that way to peace is through struggle. Peacemaking is not a passive inaction, but it's active work. Now, at the same time, we think about what it, what it means to be peacemakers, the, the task, the work of peacemaking. We also have to be aware of this trap that's hidden in the Beatitudes. I know I've fallen uh, into, into this trap numbers of times. Maybe you have too. And it's as simple as it is subtle. It's believing that Jesus is setting up in the Beatitudes conditions for blessing rather than actually blessing his hearers. Um, I've approached the Sermon on the Mount from a very individualistic point of view. Um, I've thought of it as being um, a type of thing that will shape me into becoming a better Christian. So I ask myself questions based on the Beatitudes. Am I poor enough? Or maybe am I too rich? Flip that around. Or am I sympathetic to those who are grieving and suffering? Or am I kind and gentle enough? Or am I merciful? Am I forgiving? And do I work for peace? But as Pastor Grace taught us in the first sermon in this series on the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes aren't merely a collection of ethical instructions. They're not a way for us to become better people, necessarily. Or they're not commands or suggestions. They're not even a guide on how to get to heaven after we die. 
Instead, they're a challenge for us to actually and truly be the church, be people of God, be godly. They're an appeal for Jesus's followers, including us, to discover our true calling as people of the kingdom of God, the kind of community where the poor and the meek, the peacemakers will not only be welcome, but they'll be the leading citizens of that kingdom. So maybe some questions for us to think about would be, what would it mean if we honored those people whom God honors as sons and daughters of God? Would we feel at home in a community of peacemakers? Are we comfortable with people that do this kind of work? Or will our attachments to power or status or self-advancement or a concern for our own rights keep us from being part of this community? What would happen if we stopped playing our culture's games for status and power and privilege? What would it cost us if we lived more deeply into justice and mercy, humility, or peacemaking? Think about these questions. That's um, lots of there to think on, to pray about. But as we're doing that, as we're thinking more deeply about peacemaking, uh, keep in mind the overarching work of peace that was done by Jesus himself. Christ is the one who accomplished this greatest peace making. He is above all others, our model for what it means to make peace, peace with God and peace with other people. Let me recite just a couple of scripture passages that help us remember this. Romans 5 says that since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Ephesians 2 says, In Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity, thus making peace, and in his body to reconcile people to God through the cross, by which he put to, get, put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those of you who are near. For through him, we all have access to the Father by the Spirit. And in Colossians 1, Paul writes, God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, that is Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So in God's world, in God's kingdom, suffering and sacrifice lead to reconciliation. And that in turn brings us to the goal of restoration and well-being for all of creation and all people. And if we're going to live in this kingdom of God that is characterized by peacemaking, we'll need God's grace. And we're not able to do this kind of thing from our own resources. So God's appointed means of receiving grace on a regular basis and the kind of grace that stimulates this godly character of peacemaking in us is the sacrament of communion. So let us come to the table, whoever we are and wherever we are from. We're all welcome here. Those who have much and those who have little, those who are strong and those who are weak, those who know much about God and those who are just beginning to learn 
those who have come to church all their lives, and those who are here for the first time. This is the Lord's table, not ours. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we share this bread and this cup, and we celebrate the love that binds us one to another as the people of God. So it is that all who trust Jesus, whether a little or a lot, and those who want to trust him more are invited to come and be part of this feast that he's prepared for us.